Hi, I'm your host, Coy Atkins, and thank you for listening to today's episode of Crime Nerds. Today's case is about a family of four. A family that made a lot of money through their own business, then they just seemed to disappear without a trace. But did they disappear because they made their money and they're going to live the rest of their life off the grid? Or was there something much more sinister behind their disappearance? This is the story of the McStay family. Fallbrook is a small town in San Diego County, California. It's a quiet, upscale community that's not very far from the beach. Joseph and Summer McStay purchased a house there and decided Fallbrook would be the perfect place for them to raise their two children, Gianni and Joseph Jr., who were three and five years old. Now, when Joseph and Summer first met, she was ending a horrible relationship, and they were actually set up by a mutual friend. Joseph was this down-to-earth, laid-back guy, and Summer was kind and a free-spirited woman. To everyone that knew them, they were the perfect couple together. They got married and had their two children. And Joseph owned a company called Earth Inspired Products. And the company, it designed and built these decorative high-end water fountains for people's houses. And they sold for tens of thousands of dollars each. And he drew this company into a multi-million dollar business and had clients all over the world. On February 5th, 2010, Joseph's father Patrick tried calling him, but Joseph didn't answer. And Patrick didn't think anything of it at the time. He would just call him back later. His father lived in Texas, so it's not like they saw each other daily. And sometimes they would go a few days without speaking. They both had their own very busy lives. But on February 10th, things changed. Patrick called Joseph back, and again, there was no answer, and the voicemail was full, so he couldn't leave a message. And this may be normal for some people. Myself, I'm horrible at deleting voice messages, but Patrick knows his son. Joseph runs a multi-million dollar company, and he did not get that way on accident. He prided himself in customer service, and part of that customer service was returning phone calls when clients had an issue or a question. So Joseph never ever let his voicemail get fooled to the point where someone could not leave him a message. Patrick called Joseph's younger brother Michael, but Michael wasn't too concerned at the time. While Joseph was usually good at contacting his clients back and being reachable, Michael also knew that Joseph was an adventurous person and maybe he'd taken a trip somewhere and couldn't be reached. Even though Michael wasn't too concerned at the time, he did agree that it seemed odd. So he reached out to Dan Cavanaugh, who was the website developer for Joseph's company and someone that Joseph worked closely with. But Dan also hadn't heard anything from Joseph in a while. On February 13th, Michael got together with one of Joseph's best friends and business partner, Chase Merritt. The two of them went over to Joseph's house to try and see if they could find anything out about what's going on here. When they got there, Joseph's pickup truck was in the driveway. 
but the SUV that the family used was gone. They walked around to the back of the house and they found that the family's dogs were in the backyard. There was a big bag of dog food that was ripped open on the back porch and the food was scattered all around. And this was when they realized, all right, something's wrong here. Michael and Chase found a window that was unlocked and they climbed into the house. Once they were inside, they found a carton of eggs on the kitchen counter, two bowls of popcorn that were left on the couch with popcorn spilled out. Joseph and Summer, they had recently been in the process of painting different parts of the house and all of the painting supplies were left out in the room and the paintbrushes still had the dried paint on them. It was like they were there, just living their life, and then everything stopped and they disappeared. Chase and Michael contacted the sheriff's office and reported the family as missing. When law enforcement arrived, they searched the home for any clues that could tell them what happened. There were no signs of forced entry on the house, no signs of a struggle anywhere, and there wasn't even a drop of blood found anywhere. What they did have was a video from a neighbor's security camera. The camera wasn't pointed directly at the McStay's house, so it didn't get much, but it captured the bottom of their SUV pulling out of the driveway at 7.47 p.m., but that was back on February 4th, and they were never seen coming back to the house on video, so now they've been missing for over a week. Investigators immediately put out a bolo for the car, and very quickly they get a hit on where it is. The vehicle was towed from a strip mall parking lot near the Mexico border on February 8th. So when investigators went over to the vehicle, once again, there was no blood found inside the vehicle, no signs of a struggle, no windows were busted out, thinking that the vehicle may have been stolen or dumped or anything like that. There was just no signs. The vehicle was just parked somewhere. So investigators begin this daunting task of going through video footage of everybody crossing the border of Mexico on foot in that area. And eventually they come across a video of four people from February 8th at 7.30 p.m. Now this video is hard to make out because it was dark. The people in the video, their backs are to the camera, and there's a light in front of them, which is making them the silhouette on the video. But from what's able to be seen, it looks like a man is walking in front, holding the hand of a small child. A woman is closely behind him, holding the hand of another small child. While the people in the video were hard to make out, there were a few things that stood out. Gianni and Joseph Jr., they were known to wear beanies a lot, and the children in the video also appear to be wearing beanies. Summer also owned a jacket that had a fur lining on it, which looked very similar to the one that the woman was wearing in the video. And multiple friends and family members were shown this video to see what they thought, and a lot of them, they agreed that this looked similar, but no one could agree that this was 100% the McStay family. So investigators go back to the last day that they can definitively place the McStays anywhere, which was back to February 4th, 2010. Joseph normally worked from home, but he had a business meeting that day, and he and Chase ended up meeting for lunch. 
Summer was at home and she called her sister and talked on the phone. And nothing seemed out of the ordinary from either of them at that time. After 8 p.m. that night, a phone call was made from Joseph's phone to Chase's phone. But Chase was watching a movie with his girlfriend and declined the call. And that phone call is the last trace of the McStay family. On February 19th, the sheriff's office executed a search warrant on the home. They already looked through it when they were looking for the family when they were initially called. But this time, they wanted to look more in depth. And they wanted to look at the computer search history. When they go through Summer's computer, they see recent search history for things about how to take children across the border. Did children need a passport? And she bought a software to learn Spanish. With everything that they had, the video at the border, the vehicle being found near the border, the computer searches, now the sheriff's office was ready to release a statement. They said that they believed that the family voluntarily went to Mexico. But it still didn't make sense to Patrick or other friends and family members. Why would Joseph and Summer just leave everything behind and go to Mexico without telling a single person? And go back to how the house was found. Eggs on the counter, the paintbrushes were still out, popcorn bowls on the couch, the dogs left in the backyard, and the dogs being left was another big thing. The McStays loved their dogs. They wouldn't have left them behind. Michael and the rest of the family start taking matters into their own hands. Michael launched a website called Find the McStay Family, and the website began to grow more and more each day until it caught the attention of major media outlets. Family members then began doing interviews with news stations to bring awareness to this case. People Magazine ended up covering this case as well, and then people began to throw out ideas of what they believed could have happened. One theory involved a drug cartel. Now, Joseph's water fountain business shipped these custom-made waterfalls all over the world. So the theory was that maybe a drug cartel approached him. They demanded that he start hiding drugs in the waterfalls to be shipped places. When he declined, they either kidnapped or murdered the family. And when you start putting everything together, this theory actually sounds like it could be a real possibility. Why else would their car be near the border, a video of people that looked very similar to them crossing the border? But maybe it wasn't necessarily that they were kidnapped, maybe they were running. And if that was the case, maybe they would go to the property that Joseph owned that was completely off the grid. Over the last few years, I've been writing a fictional book called One Moment, and it's now available on Amazon. It's based in St. Augustine, Florida, and it tells the story of Micah and Sarah. After spending six years in the army, Micah returned to his hometown. Returning home was never part of his plan, but after the physical, emotional, and mental stress from war, home was the best place for him. Sarah is beginning to put her life back together after escaping an abusive marriage. At 24 years old, She's a 911 dispatcher living in St. Augustine. While she is starting to heal, she crosses paths with Micah. Immediately, there is an undeniable connection between the two of them, and they know that they were put in each other's lives for a reason. When Sarah's jealous and abusive ex-husband finds out about the new relationship, he has to get involved himself. 
While this puts a strain on Sarah and Micah's relationship, dark secrets begin to come out, and they learn that maybe you never truly know someone, and sometimes the best and the worst things in life can all be traced back to one moment. One moment's available now on Amazon. It's $9.99 for a paperback copy and $2.99 for an ebook. The Amazon link is in the show notes, and if you read it, I really hope you enjoy it, and please let me know what you think of it. Patrick knew that Joseph had bought a piece of property in the Caribbean country of Belize. Joseph's dream was to one day retire down in Belize with Summer and the kids. Patrick was hoping that maybe that's where Joseph went, so he contacted the police in Belize to go check out the property. And when they went, they searched all around, but there was no sign of the McStay family. Patrick was also able to locate the password to Joseph's bank account. And when he checked the account, Patrick found that there was still over $100,000 in the account and no money had been spent in the account from the day that they disappeared. Now it didn't make sense that they would be on the run because if they were running, why would they leave so much money behind? Patrick, Michael, and other family members began going through Joseph and Summer's email accounts and one by one, they covered over 16,000 emails. But they came across one that really got their attention. It was from December of 2009, six weeks before they went missing. As I mentioned in the beginning, when Summer and Joseph first met, she was getting out of a really bad relationship. Well, this email was from her ex, and it read, Happy birthday, love Vic, forever and ever. By 2009, Summer hadn't talked to Vic in over five years, so why is he sending her this email now? And then just a few weeks later, the whole family is missing. When Vic and Summer were dating, Vic was, to say the least, pretty crazy. Vic went over to Summer's apartment one day, and she was asleep in bed with her cat. Well, he was watching her through a window and saw the cat move under the blanket. He thought that someone was in bed with Summer, and he busted through the window, jumped on the bed, and began attacking Summer in her sleep. After their relationship ended, he had been arrested several other times, and in one incident, he had told a neighbor that he knew how to kill someone. But when Vic found out that the family was missing, he called detectives himself, and he said that he knew from his history he would be a suspect from day one. So he was able to give them an alibi that checked out and they ruled him out. And it seemed like this investigation went from no answers and, oh, maybe the family just ran off on their own, to now all these theories about how it could have been foul play. Because the next thing that happened seemed even more suspicious. As I mentioned earlier, Dan Cavanaugh was Joseph's business partner and website developer. Well, after Joseph went missing, Dan tried to sell Joseph's company for $1 million, and he listed himself as the owner and CEO of the company. Patrick looked into instant messages between Dan and Joseph and found messages where they were arguing back and forth about money. And Joseph would always pay him a few extra hundred dollars during these arguments, and at one point even bought him a BMW. But the most that Joseph had ever given Dan was $300. 
Then, two days after Joseph went missing, Dan drew $2,000 from the business bank account. Without a doubt, this seems sketchy, but as investigators began to look into Dan, they were quickly able to rule him out because he was in Hawaii around the time that the McStay family went missing. And then things cooled down and a few years passed and there were still no signs of the McStay family. The tips that came in led nowhere. Investigators, Patrick, Michael, other family and friends, they were all back at square one of this mystery. But that wouldn't be the case for much longer. Because on November 11th, 2013, a guy was riding a dirt bike in the desert near Victorville, California. The last thing he expected was to get involved in this case, but he ended up finding the evidence that blew this case wide open. The rider noticed something odd sticking out of the sand, and as he approached the object, he realized that it was a human skull. Investigators arrived in the desert and they found two graves. In the graves were four decomposed bodies. Two of the bodies were adults and two of them were children. The condition of the bodies told investigators that they had been brutally murdered. Several bones had been broken on each body. Then they found what they believed was the murder weapon. They found a sledgehammer that was buried near the bodies. Investigators had to use dental records to identify the bodies, and they were able to use that to identify Joseph and Summer. Then they were able to conclude that the bodies of the two children were Gianni and Joseph Jr. Joseph and Summer's family and friends finally had answers of what happened to the family. They knew that they weren't in Mexico, they didn't run away. Well, they had some sort of answers now. Because now the questions just changed. The question now was, who did this and why? Victorville, California was in San Bernardino County, which was about 100 miles north of where the McStay family was living in Fallbrook. So San Bernardino, their sheriff's office took over the investigation since the bodies were found in their jurisdiction. The new investigators wanted to go back to the McStay's home and look it over, but at this point it had been several years. The house had been sold, a new family was living there, and there was no evidence there. So they just had to go off of the photos that the San Diego Sheriff's Office took from their initial investigation. And the photos showed that it didn't look like this crime could have been committed there. This was a family of four beaten to death with a sledgehammer. There wasn't a drop of blood found in the home when San Diego Sheriff's Office was looking into the case. So they aren't really sure where this murder happened, but the one piece of evidence that they did still have was the vehicle that was towed from the Mexico border. Investigators began processing this vehicle and they were looking for DNA evidence. And they found a match that didn't belong to Joseph, Summer, or the kids. But it did match someone that they knew, someone that they loved and that they were friends with matched one of the people that actually went to the house to look for them, Chase Merritt, Joseph's friend and business partner. When investigators began looking into Chase's criminal history, they saw that he had been arrested for things like burglary, grand theft, and dealing in stolen property. Along with all that history, he was known to have a gambling problem. 
Joseph tried helping Chase get over his problem. He kept giving him money to pay off his gambling debts, hoping that Chase would see his problem and get help himself. But that didn't seem to happen, and Chase continued going to Joseph to borrow more and more money. By the time that Joseph had disappeared, Chase had borrowed about $30,000 to pay off gambling debts. On February 4, 2010, Joseph had his business lunch with Chase. When investigators looked into Chase's cell phone records, they were able to place him in Victorville, California on February 5th, and it turned out that Chase was born and raised there. His sister actually lived just a few miles from where the bodies were found. And after the family disappeared, Chase also took out $21,000 from the business account. On November 5th, 2014, Chase was arrested for the murder of Joseph Summer Gianni and Joseph Jr. But this was far from over because the next step was the trial. Chase's defense attorneys believed that they had a good chance to prove that Chase was not guilty of this crime. Prosecutors were saying that Chase went over to the family's home on the night of February 4th. Chase got into an argument with Summer and Joseph over money. The argument got out of control and he ended up beating them with the sledgehammer. But the problem went back to how that house was found. There were no signs of a struggle, not a drop of blood found anywhere. Even if he did somehow manage to clean up every drop of blood, you would think that he would have also cleaned up the popcorn on the couch or threw the eggs away or do something to make it seem more normal. His attorneys also argued that the DNA found in the vehicle was not enough to suggest that Chase drove the car himself and ditched it after burying the bodies. According to the defense attorneys, there was a small amount of Chase's DNA on the steering wheel and the gear shifter, but there was none on the outside or inside door handle that he would have used to get in and out of the vehicle. His attorney said that this was more consistent with the amount of DNA that would be transferred in a handshake. They theorized that at this lunch, Chase shook Joseph's hand at the end of it. Joseph then got into the car, and when he touched the steering wheel and the gear shifter, that transferred Chase's DNA. The trial was delayed for years. Different court motions were filed trying to have these charges dropped for different reasons. Chase was firing and hiring lawyers. At one point, he was even going to represent himself. But finally... In January of 2019, the trial started. No matter what Chase's attorneys argued about the crime scene and DNA evidence, in the end, it was the smallest attention to detail that put this trial away. An article in the Daily Press by Richard D. Attlee covers this small but crucial detail. At the trial, a video was played for the jury. It was a recorded interview that detectives had with Chase back in 2010, just a few weeks after the mixed days were reported missing. In the interview, Chase referred to Joseph in the past tense and said he was my best friend. Now, detectives let the interview go, and as the interview finishes up, they go back and point out to Chase that he referred to Joseph in the past tense, and they ask him why he did that. And his response was, quote, Nah, not really. I just, you know, nah, I... So while he's tripping up on his words, they ask him if he understood what they were talking about, and his response to that was, of course, I completely understand. But no, I've never even thought of him as possibly being... 
Well, I can't say I haven't thought of him as possibly being dead, because I have, but I don't like to think of it that way, of course. Prosecutors argued that Chase subconsciously referred to Joseph in the past tense back in 2010 because he already knew that the McStay family was dead. With his own statements against him, his cell phone pings placing him near their gravesite, with his history in the area, his gambling problems, money problems, the DNA evidence, on June 10th, 2019, Chase was found guilty at trial. On June 24th, the jury recommended that Chase be sentenced to death for this horrific crime. And in January of 2020, the court upheld the jury's sentencing recommendation and Chase was sentenced to death. Patrick told People Magazine that Joseph only wanted to be a good husband and father and to be able to provide for his family. Joseph and Summer are remembered by their friends and family for their love for one another and the love that they had for their children. And this brings us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Crime Nerds Podcast, and I'll be posting pictures of the McStay family on those platforms. Thank you for listening.